You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. The last couple of weeks, um, as we've kind of been working through chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we've, um, we've, we've encountered two different situations. One with the official son who was kind of on his deathbed seemingly in, in his sickness, and then last week as the the paralytic man who's been sitting there for so long waiting for healing and uh, wondering if that would ever occur, and uh, Jesus finally coming upon the scene and, and doing that for him. We've, we've talked about um, just our own circumstances and the way God works and moves, um, learning to trust uh, in his power, in his process, and his goodness before we actually see him carry out some of those plans. Um, we talked about him taking our shallow faith, moving it towards a mature faith, which we described as believing and expecting his faithfulness before we actually see his faithfulness, uh, reducing the amount of time it takes for us to trust him in the midst of difficulty. Last week, we saw that he is the Lord of sickness and Sabbath, that he wants our beliefs about him to lead us to obey his words in a way that results in serving others around us. Uh, we talked about his, uh, his timing and his purpose, that uh, he specifically heals this individual on a particular Sabbath day to address their um, their legalism, that he could have healed this guy plenty of other times. He'd been to that area plenty of other times, and the guy had been in his condition for a long period of time. Um, and so Jesus could have healed him any number of days prior to that, but had chosen to wait until that specific day for a specific purpose of addressing this this theology where they had elevated the Sabbath really above many other things to the point that they had neglected people around them that were in need. Um, We talked about being careful that we don't fall uh, into that trap of putting our own preferences and our own applications to Scripture uh, upon other people and expecting them to to live and make choices based on what we think they should do. We talked about not becoming uncompassionate with our theology. We talked about embracing expectations that come from meeting Jesus uh, when Jesus meets back up with this man, he really challenges him to uh, to live differently, to, to um, see sin change in his life as a result of meeting with Jesus. Um, and from an application standpoint, last week we talked about evaluating your life, determining if there's any willful, unconfessed sin that could result in sickness or worse, and confess it, because we said that Jesus challenged him, warned him that if he were to to continue living the way that he had been previously living, that something worse could happen to him than what he had been experiencing. We talked about evaluating whether there's anyone in your life that needs your compassion and help that you've ignored for far too long. And then number three, evaluating whether there's any tendency to value an aspect of your theology too much that's causing you to be prideful. Um, Which brings us to uh, the second half of John chapter 5. And before we get into that, I wanted to kind of start by getting some feedback from you guys about maybe anything over the last week or two that you've encountered um, in your schedule, in your week, different circumstances, different people that you've come in contact with where you've been able to directly apply something that we've been learning about, something that uh, happened, it triggered something that we've been learning about, and you were able to directly apply something that we've been studying to that situation. Anybody had a situation like that? Yep. I haven't done it yet, but this will make me do it now probably. But um, as soon as you started talking about that, I knew immediately, like I feel like I passed by this specific cleaning lady at our work all the time. And 
I'm always so busy with what I'm doing and I care what I'm doing and I don't even care to sit and talk with her. So I know that, um, you know, I want to do something like give her a, a gift card and just say thanks for all that you do here, something like that, just to, to open the door where I can talk to her more and say hi to her and not just be dismissive when I walk by and be thankful for everything that they do there. So that, that immediately clicked for me and I, and I felt that even before you said that uh, last week, but it just confirmed that, that, that I need to be doing those type of things better. I read an article recently where um, this student was getting ready to take a final, and one of the big questions on the final was, what's the name of the cleaning lady in our building? And um, everybody was like, are you serious? Like, is this really a question? And, and the teacher was like, yeah, because you guys need to understand and learn that as you continue to, to move forward in life, there are people around you that are taking care of you and serving you, and you don't need to ignore the fact that they're there. Um, and so they're talking about just the challenge of that, like they all kind of left and felt this compelling to go and, and get to know this individual. And I think I had referenced, you know, last week, uh, some individuals at Trinity that worked there that um, oftentimes I, I'm too busy to, to kind of pass by. And even after mentioning it, I caught myself a couple times this week where I had kind of blazed right by in my business and kind of caught myself, turned around and came back and, and had a conversation um, realizing that, um, you know, that, that, that there are people that are there that, that too oftentimes we just, we pass by too quickly that, that need us. So um, other, other things that maybe have triggered in your mind, things that we've been learning over the past week or two. Yep. Two things. Uh, two weeks ago was the sermon about not being so quick to like be uh, critical, I guess, towards things that God, God's doing. So I've found that kid that we kind of were like, I don't really know if he got saved when he told everybody he did. And I just went up to him and talked to him, like, hey, I heard that this happened. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, that's really awesome. Like, I'm here if you ever want to talk about that. I just tried to encourage him as opposed to, like, disbelieving, like we talked about. And then there was a time where we took a field trip and saw a movie, uh, a Christian movie that was kind of cheesy. And my tendency was to be very critical toward it. So, like, your sermon was in the mindset then to just kind of give God the credit where he deserves it and just be gracious towards other things that I'm super critical about. And then because of your sermon last week, I went and found one of our guys um, that does work at the school, um, and he sits by himself and eats lunch every day. So I just went and ate lunch with him and learned about who he is, favorite colors. It was good. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember how many weeks ago it was. I guess the the woman at the well, um, one of the things that you said was convicting to me just about how this is a time in which Jesus, Jesus was probably tired and like it would have been real easy to direct his attention somewhere else or, or to give himself a pass to not even talk to this person um, and do ministry with this, with, take advantage of that ministry. And um, that was convicting to me. And then I think around the same time our accountability group met and one of the questions that I wanted to have put towards me regularly and accountability is who, who have I shared the gospel with lately and who have I shown hospitality to lately and sort of connected to that. And then, like, I started praying about it, and then, like, the very next day at work, the computer system goes down. I mean, I can be on my computer, but all of our files go down so that I can't, like, do any actual work. And so I went to uh, – I've been – not going out to eat at all, but I, but I decided, well, I'm going to go eat breakfast somewhere, and then hopefully the computer system will be back up. 
And during that diversion, there was a guy, uh, a homeless guy that I met, and I had breakfast with him. And um, I mean, I won't go into the whole conversation, but um, but he talked about a lot of the things that have gone on in his life, and I um, was able to to pray with him a little bit, and um, I, it just felt very much like a specific answered prayer based on things that I had been thinking about from the sermon. Yeah. <coughs> <clears throat> kind of going off of what um, <coughs> Daniel said that in those times when you know Jesus probably was weird and just could have easily been like okay like we're done with my kids with my client kids um, it would be so easy for me and especially now starting to get into school with the they're tired and kind of over me, I think. And um, it would be so easily easy for me just to be like, I just, we're just going to play a game today, we're going to therapy, like, but um, because just on those days that I'm tired and I feel like I'm not making a difference, to work harder for them and to love them harder, to serve them harder, um, I had to have a meeting um, and I didn't want to go <laughs> with this one particular fifth grader I have who's just comes from like a real hard little life and is real angry and just real sad. So I didn't want to go, but I went. Um, and it was a really good opportunity because I got to advocate for her and um, got to um, just serve her in, in a way that I don't think other people would, other people can. So I always just challenge my heart to just be more selfless and serve her. To go along with what Taylor was saying, I was really encouraged and spurred on by your sermon with the woman at the well, where Jesus was sitting there, he's weary, he was tired, he was hungry, thirsty, and he still like loved her and served her and cared for her heart. And there have been so many times in the past few weeks where I'll have opportunities with my kids in their disobedience or in a problem with them where I could just be lazy in my discipline or lazy in getting down to the heart of their why they're doing what they're doing because and I'm more quick because I'm hungry or tired or worn out to just be like just go just just you know and not deal with it not not give them the attention that they need or even talk to their hearts and I was spurred on by that sermon to still you know like what she was saying you know give up myself to them when I'm tired, especially, and knowing whenever I'm tired and hungry, knowing like, you know, I feel like when it, because of my kids, I am more tired than I used to be, but because of that, it's a tendency for me to, you get what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> tired and hungry? <laughs> um, anyways, I, uh, I, I have really been in trying to be intentional with them to get down, especially in those moments when it's a temptation for me to just brush something to the side or say I'll deal with it later to end those moments speak to their hearts try to talk to their hearts and that's what I'm encouraging yeah. I had an incident this week where um, we're in the midst of hiring new teachers and there's three or four that I've been in the process of trying to get hired and just a process of, of getting the offer right and all that kind of thing and um, one that I'm excited about all of them but one particular um, things were starting to fall apart this week, and um, 
I just kind of went into to panic mode about how am I going to find somebody else to do this job? Like I've been banking on this. It kind of shapes the rest of what we're doing and sat down with our head of school and started talking about like, um, you know, what do we need to do? What do we got to fix this? Like we got to have this person. And then was really just convicted about thinking that like God couldn't do something different if need be in this situation and provide somebody totally off the radar to fulfill this spot. And so when my head of school asked me what he felt, what I felt like we needed to do, um, I told him, I said, I think we just need to sit tight and just wait. I said, because I'm really convicted over what I'm studying in John that I said, I'm, I'm reading and studying about him healing people that are about to die. And, and I'm reading about him healing people that, that are crippled for, for 38 years. And I said, I think he can, I think he can <laughs> provide a teacher for us right here if this person doesn't come through. And so we got to talk about that a little bit. And I was just super convicted about how quickly I kind of went into panic mode that, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And then just really kind of coming back to what we've been studying and realizing, man, God may have something even better, you know, in store and in plan. And it seems like as soon as I kind of recognized that and realized that, everything worked out and we were able to get the teacher that we wanted. And so I was really convicted about that. And then secondly, um, I've been working with this one family that's coming in. I've met with them a couple of times and she wanted to meet again with me. And, you know, it's, it's a busy time where, you know, meetings are, are important, and, and when they happen, they need to be really important. And I wasn't really sure what, what the purpose of this meeting was because we had already accepted this student, already assessed, interviewed everything. And she said, I really want to just sit down and meet with you about my child. And um, it's particularly a kid that's already kind of got my heart because when I met him the very first time, he kind of hugged me uh, in the assessment, which just doesn't happen, right? And so, I mean, this kid's just hugging on his new principal. And so just kind of have a compassionate thinking towards him already. And so we're sitting there talking and she's just telling me more about him, um, how he hasn't, his dad hasn't been in his life his entire life. Um, and she said it wasn't a big deal until he was about five years old. And, um, she said he started noticing other, uh, his friends, dads were coming around and he didn't have one. And so he started asking tons of questions about where's my dad. And, you know, she said that she tried to explain to him that, uh, his dad just didn't want to be a dad. You know, he just, made a bad choice or whatever. And, um, she said even more recently, like he comes into her bedroom and and it'll just, you know, plop down on her lap and just start crying about, um, you know, where his dad is and, you know, really internalizing it to the point where he says, you know, is it because I run around too much? Is it because I'm too loud? Is, is that what makes him, you know, not want to be a dad? And what really got me is she said, we've been praying like for the past 10 years that, um, that God would give me a husband and a, and a dad for him. And she said, my son's looking at me and going, you know, how much longer do we have to pray? You know, because, you know, why hasn't God done this? And so it was a really cool opportunity for me to be able to kind of talk with her even too. just one, I was convicted about the length of time she's been praying for this. And she still believes that God is going to bring a man into her life that'll take care of both her and her son. But just to, you know, see how she was kind of guiding her son through that as well was super, super convicting to me too. And, you know, I assured her, I said, look, I'm going to keep an eye out for your son next year. Like I want to intentionally connect with him throughout the year just because of um, just some of the things that God's been prompting, you know, in my heart with him. So um, just cool to see and, and cool to hear from you guys too, just ways that God is extending what we're studying on a Sunday morning throughout the week and, and prompting us and, and helping us to see application to, you know, real life situations for us. And so I hope he'll continue to do that. And I hope that we'll continue to believe more and more as we've talked about kind of the goal of this study is that we would believe more as his followers, that he's capable of doing the things that he promises that he will do. So John chapter five, um, 
here at the beginning or at the end of verse 18, the beginning of the passage that we want to look at today, uh, we're reminded last week that in engaging the, the Jews about the Sabbath, he makes the comment about that, that he, was, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so we really want to hone in on that idea of what, what, what looks like that in this passage with the idea of um, Jesus being equal with his father. So from a summary sentence standpoint, Jesus presents himself as God's equal based on his works, his power, and his authority, calling each of us to trust in him for salvation so that we enjoy new life now and forever. So Jesus presents himself as God's equal based on his works, his power, and his authority, calling each of us to trust in him for salvation so that we enjoy new life now and forever. For our kids, Jesus is equal with God the Father, so we should trust him and follow him at all times. And so uh, as we look at this passage, the the question is being raised uh, as to whether Jesus is equal with God or not. We said that the the Jews have rejected that idea, right? They're calling this blasphemous. They want to kill Jesus over this. But the question still exists for us in the text. Do Do we believe that Jesus is equal with God because he presents himself that way, right? He intentionally identified himself with the Father, forcing people to make a decision. So you get this idea here that he's calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Some skeptics would try to say that this was a misunderstanding by the Jews, that Jesus never intended for that to be the case. But we see in verse 19 and following that Jesus is very intentional to, to confirm what they believe that he is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will show you, will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Um, so he's very intentional to identify himself in this capacity of being equal with God. There's others in Scripture that do this, that it doesn't fare well for them. Um, in the Old Testament particularly, uh, Ezekiel 28.2, there's a passage about a guy named Hiram who does this. Ezekiel 29.3, there's an indictment against Pharaoh for doing this. And then in Isaiah 14, verse 14, there is the um, rebuke against Nebuchadnezzar for doing this. And so uh, people in the Old Testament who elevated themselves to godlike status were not looked upon favorably by God. And so you can understand, you know, the Jews being hesitant to receive somebody like this. Um, but again, what I, what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago was they never paused to ask themselves if this is true, right? So they're very quick to denounce it, uh, which they typically probably should have in most situations, but they never stop and pause to ask themselves if this is true based on the things that Jesus was doing. Um, and so Jesus continues to present, him this, and present himself in this manner. So first in our notes today, believe in the authority of Jesus for salvation. Believe in the authority of Jesus for salvation. For our kids, Jesus has the power to give life. So as Jesus is presenting this teaching to the Jewish people here, he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Several things we can see here in this section. Number one, the son claims he and the father are unified 
in their purposes and plans. They are unified in their purposes and plans. Jesus says that he, the Son, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that's what he does. Father loves him enough to show him those things. So they're, they're unified in their purposes, their plans. Together they work the Sabbath properly, right? We saw last week that Jesus says it's appropriate for him to work on the Sabbath because they've already excused God the Father for doing that. And so because of their equality there, because he is part of this triune Godhead, he has absolute right to work on the Sabbath as well. Um, so they're, they're working the Sabbath properly together. Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus is, is not limited in his power. Instead, how we should understand this is that he is directed by God's purposes. So when Jesus makes this comment, he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, we don't need to, to then see Jesus as though he has limited himself in what he's capable of doing. Instead, he is capable of anything and everything, and he has directed his power in line with the Father's purposes and plans. He can do whatever the Father does because he knows all that the Father knows. Therefore, Jesus submits to do nothing on his own. He does not seek to operate independently of his Father. Well, that's important for us. It's something that we take for granted that as we talk about this triune God, we don't have tension within the Trinity where one is wanting to do one thing and the other is wanting to do a different type thing, right? There's, there's perfect unity between the Father and the Son in what they are seeking to accomplish. Jesus is ultimately claiming to possess the power to give life and to judge. And these are two things that are exclusive to God alone, right? Um, so there's this idea here that the Father has given him the ability to give life to whomever he will, and the Father has given him the right to judge. And we'll see how both of those things are playing themselves out in the second part of this section, that the Father has given him the right to, to give life. He has given him the right to judge, and Jesus is doing both of those things. All right, so the Son claims that he and the Father are unified in their purposes and plans. Number two, he claims he possesses the same life-giving power as the Father. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is a unique characteristic of God that only he can do. Only God has the power to give life and to take it, ultimately. In the Old Testament, it was interesting to read, in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people believed that there were three specific keys that God possessed that, that nobody else had, uh, things that were exclusive to God. The first key being uh, the key to the heavens and to the rain. In Deuteronomy chapter... 28 verse 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. We see time and again in the Old Testament where God will withhold the rain, ultimately withholding the prosperity of the people because they're in the midst of drought. We see that particularly with Elijah in the Old Testament, God's response to the sin of the people, right? And so God shuts the skies up, and there is no rain until he allows Elijah to be an instrument to call forth the rain, right? The, the people uh, or the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel are seeking to call down fire from heaven, right? And, and they can't get their gods to do it. Only Elijah is able to be successful in that. And so one of the keys that the Jewish people attributed to God was his ability to 
um, to, to control the heavens and to bring rain when appropriate. The second key that we see in the Old Testament is God's key over the womb and conception. In Genesis 30, 22, we see God specifically remembering Rachel in her barrenness and giving her children, right? And so we see in the Old Testament people who desire to have kids, long to have children, praying to God, and, and we see the, the principles of God being able to open and close the womb as he chooses. The third key that we see in the Old Testament is a key over the grave and life. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Second Corinthians 1, 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So when you think about these three areas that God controls, it should bring great comfort to us that he does control these things, right? Not that we are typically overly concerned about whether it's going to rain or not rain, but that passage talks about his treasury, ultimately, of blessing our hard work. So ultimately, God is sovereign and in control over your job and the, the results of your job that come towards your family in the areas that you seek to support them in. That the, the God is, is ruling and reigning over the, the production of your job and how you're able to support your family. He's ultimately over the, the giving and the taking of life from our families within the womb. And ultimately, he is responsible for the resurrection that can come from death. And Jesus is claiming to have the same type of life-giving power as the Father, something that the Jewish people only believed that God possessed. But number three, he's also claiming that he can judge with the same honor as the Father. The same honor as the Father, he's able to judge. And this is something that he says the Father has given to him. In John chapter 5, verse 22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus claiming the ability to judge. It's a unique characteristic of God that only he has the right to do this. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham is praying to God but prior to the destruction of Sodom, and he gives this, this attribute to God. He, he, he recognizes it, talks about him being the judge of the earth and begging God to bring justice to the earth. Jesus receives proper honor through his judgment. It only belongs to God, and he will not give it to another. It's very important that we understand, again, the Jewish people's mindset for God's honor was that belonged to him and him alone. So again, Jesus is not trying to distance himself from this idea of, of whether he's equal to God or not. He's trying to seize hold of it. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. All right, so the father has already said that he will not give his honor and his glory to someone else right? Jesus being equal with God already possesses that. It's a good reminder to us that any religious system that does not honor Jesus with the exact same honor as the Father is false. It's a false religion, right? So you begin to dialogue with somebody about their, their belief system. If they start to, to, to detract from Jesus and the Father being equal as one, their religion is false, that their religion is from hell, 
you could say, that, that, that it, is, it is meant to condemn because it is distorted. It has distorted who Jesus really is. And First John talks about this, that you can't reject one and have the other, that they, they go hand in hand, the Father and the Son, right? And so Jesus is talking about possessing the same honor as his Father. He's not equal with God as another God, nor is he a competing God against the Father. He is equal with God in unity. The implication for us from what Jesus is saying here is that believing that Jesus comes with the same equality as the Father leads to salvation and to life. So Jesus kind of climaxes his teaching here on the fact that he is he is unified in purpose and plans with his Father. He has the power to give life. He has the power to judge. He reminds the Jewish people here what he is actually claiming, and that's the ability to give them salvation, to give them eternal life. It says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There's this process that Jesus talks about here about hearing his word, believing his word, and possessing eternal life. Notice it doesn't say that we hear his word, we believe his word, and then we'll see if we get eternal life right? The, the, the works-based mentality here is completely removed. We talked about this in the book of Hebrews, that if you're saved, you're absolutely saved. It's, it's not in question. It's not in doubt, right? The same idea is found in Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10. The concept of hearing, believing, and receiving salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. John is describing a real point in time in history where people pass from death to life. They do not come into judgment. They have passed from death to life. They have possessed eternal life. It's a real point in time in history. Um, in our discussion groups this morning, we were talking about, you know, how do you counsel somebody who maybe doesn't remember exactly that day and time? And I don't believe that it is necessary to know the day and time that you pass from death and life, death to life, to have actually passed from death to life, right? Um, I think that you can, you can see evidence of the fact that you have even if you can't directly remember the point in time when that occurred. And I think that's, that's more common for those who have grown up in church. Again, we've talked about in the book of John that you have disciples believing and believing and believing and believing throughout this gospel. When did they first start believing in Jesus? We might could debate some of that, right? They may not have fully understood exactly when they started to fully believe in him, um, but I do believe there is a point in time where God, from his perspective, understands an individual passing from death to life, right? Um, it's a real point in time in history. We don't, we don't progress into eternal life. We pass from death into life. And it's important because what Jesus is saying here is that he does have the right to judge and that he is coming to judge. In Acts chapter 17, verse 29 being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, and so the indication here is that not only is there a day where we pass from death to life in our salvation, there is a point in time in history, a day of judgment that is to come. And God has assured us that Jesus will be the one to do that judging. He's assured us of that by raising him from the dead. All right, number two, the second part of our, our text today is that we have a responsibility to live in response to this authority that he has described. All right, so Jesus is saying, look, I'm unified with the Father in purpose. I possess the same uh, works and power that he does. I have the power to give life. I have the power to judge. Therefore, I offer eternal life to you. And we have a responsibility to live in response to that, as a, to that authority now. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about something that is actually occurring right then and there at that time. Number one, the Son empowers us with new spiritual life to live obediently for him. This is what he is directly talking about here a present tense ability for Jesus to give life to those who are dead. Now, he is specifically talking about the spiritual life that he is extending. People who are dead spiritually, who are now being given spiritual life, coming alive to the things of God. That, that new birth that we talked about with Nicodemus several weeks ago. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. As I'm reading and studying this, I can't help but think about the way this is described in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, this is our, this is our picture of our salvation, that we were dead in our sins. We were disinterested in the things of God. We were on a completely different course that would lead towards death. Jesus intervenes. He saves us. He makes us alive to things that we were previously opposed to. And our lives are radically changed, right? It talks about us possessing eternal life before it ever talks about any good works flowing from us, right? That that, that salvation is secure at that moment. We are sealed with his Holy Spirit. And therefore, moving forward, we begin to produce these good works that he describes here. Good works that we, we were, that were prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The Son empowers us with this type of life to live obediently for him now. But then number two, the Son also empowers us with new physical life to live forever with him. So there's this element of the future that Jesus is also talking about here in John chapter 5. 
So he begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when this type of resurrection is happening, this spiritual resurrection. But then in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, and it's kind of implied, and it's not now here, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This, this future perspective on how Jesus gives life, life that allows us to then live forever with him because it's a physical type of resurrection. So he's granting spiritual life every day now to those who are dead right now so that they can be saved. And then in the future, he's going to grant physical life one day to all of the dead later in the future where he will call forth everybody to this type of resurrection. Some to a resurrection of life with him, others to a resurrection of judgment. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The implication for us here is that true belief will lead to a life of good works now. True belief will lead to a life of good works now. It's the indicator for us as to whether or not we've truly been saved or not. He says, hear my words, believe in me, and you will have eternal life. Whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. And how do we know who those people are? It's those who have done good that will be raised to that resurrection of life. Not because of their good works, as evidence of their salvation. I wanted to get to these application points quickly because I wanted to make sure we had enough time to look at them. Um, as we kind of started off today, I wanted us to see, hopefully, and, and I'm thankful that there were, ways that we are directly applying some of these things in our everyday life right now. Um, I want that to continue moving forward. And so I read this passage, and I see a lot of, a lot of theology here, a lot of theology that, that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, the, the theology of Jesus and the Father being one, being equal, not, not separate entities, not separate beings, but, but one God, three persons, um, with, with equal nature here, right? We see Jesus describing what that means, that he possesses the same power as the Father, the power to give life, the power to judge. Uh, we see a doctrine of, of salvation here, that salvation is not based on works, that it's based on hearing his word, believing his word, and then possessing that eternal life, passing from death to life, escaping his judgment. We see that the, the doctrine of that new birth again that we've already talked about in John, the idea that, um, that we're dead in our sins, God speaks to us, he, he makes us alive to his word so that we can believe it. And then we see this eschatology perspective here that, that there's more to come in the future where, where Jesus is going to continue to extend this life in ways that we haven't yet experienced. So we're getting a taste of what eternal life looks like now because we've been awakened to the things of God. And then we will get a greater fulfillment of that in the future when we actually experience that glorified resurrection. But what does this all mean for us moving forward? You know, we're going to leave here in a few minutes and, and then we've got another week before us of things that we are tentatively planning to experience, but as, as this is the case for every week, we will experience things that we weren't prepared for, uh, new things that, that we weren't planning, right? And so how do we take what we're seeing in this passage and directly apply it to things that we will encounter this week? Number one, 
when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness in our circumstances. We need to remember those plans were filtered through the wisdom of the Father and the Son. When I read this passage, um, I'm, I, I've been teaching you guys, so I'm, I'm aware in my head God's good, God is wise, God makes plans that are consistent with, with both of those things, wise plans that are good for his children. But it really jumped off the page for me this week in studying this. It's the wisdom and the planning of both the Father and the Son together that, that really stood out to me, that um, kind of seeing the, the dual aspect here of the Father and the Son working together for these purposes and plans. Uh, it's a great reminder to me that um, we're, we're going to face things this week that, that, again, we're not planning for, we're not expecting, and, and things that we would potentially choose to do differently. Um, and we're going to be tempted to doubt God's goodness. Um, again, I was humbled by the woman who I'm talking to who, who longs for God to do things differently in her life, to bring her a husband, to bring her a father for her son. Um, but to see her continue to resolve in God's goodness uh, was convicting for me. Um, because I'm not in that state right now where, where she is. I'm not in a state necessarily where I'm desperately praying for a specific thing that I want God to come through for me that would affect my life in the way that it would affect hers. Um, and and she, she would be, you know, in my perspective, very tempted to doubt God's goodness and God's provision in her life. Um, and, and I know that there may be something that, that occurs in my life this week that will certainly um, challenge my faith. Um, and I want us all to, to see this perspective from this passage that when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, that we need to be reminded that his plans, his purposes are filtered through the wisdom of both the Father and the Son. All right? Number two, when questioning whether someone will ever be saved, remember the power exists to change that person's life. As I'm reading through this passage, it's a strong reminder to me that there are certain individuals in our lives that, again, we've talked about this through the Gospel of John, that we may be tempted to give up on and think God's never going to save that individual. For those of us that teach, there are students that we would label as kids that are maybe unsavable. There are family members that we have shared the gospel with time and time again. To have Jesus once again confess with his own mouth that he possesses the, the life-giving ability to save somebody ought to be a strong encouragement to us to keep praying and keep laboring for salvation of those around us. That he possesses that power the power to change somebody's life, the power to bring them from death to life. And number three, when confused over the death of a loved one, remember the greatest act of healing through resurrection is still to come. When confused over the death of a loved one, remember the greatest act of healing through resurrection is still to come. We've had people in our church that, that have experienced death, um, family members, friends that, that have died suddenly, unexpectedly, um, others who have maybe had to watch a family member or friend get sick, go to the doctor, receive treatment, and, and not experience healing from it. It's not because God lacks the power to heal. And Jesus is very clear here that he possesses the power to give life. 
Um, he can give it however he wants to. Um, and we see him extend life to the official's son who is on his deathbed, chooses to heal that individual, chooses to heal the paralytic man, but also chooses to, heal, to not heal a bunch of other people that are right there with that guy. Um, and so we've talked about the bigger plans, the bigger purposes. There's uh, not so much for our family, but our extended family, a, a friend of theirs passed away yesterday, just suddenly. Um, no real rhyme or reason, um, just went to bed and then didn't wake up the next morning. Um, Jesus had full power to, to change the outcome of that, that night for that individual. Could have easily extended life to allow that person to wake up the next morning and chose not to. Um, the hope and the encouragement for us when we're dealing with that type of grief is that the greatest act of healing through resurrection is still to come. You know, we can, we can sit and question and say, why didn't God heal this individual? Why didn't God, why didn't God do something in this situation? And God did heal some people, and God even raised some people back from the dead to life, and those people died again, right? So Lazarus miraculously raised to life, and then years down the road, he died again and didn't get raised to life. And so they had to go through that whole grieving process again of, of we've lost Lazarus once more. But the great hope that we see in this passage is that whether he chooses to heal temporarily or chooses not to, whether he chooses to extend physical life temporarily or chooses not to, what is assured for us down the road is that he will give a resurrected life to everybody. Not just to believers, but to everybody, resurrection is going to happen. happen. Some to eternal life and then some to judgment. And so when we're confused over the death of a loved one, it's so important that we remember this passage that he has the power to give life and he will give life to every single person. Some whose life will be better characterized as death when they're raised to judgment. Others who will be raised to this type of eternal life that we're describing here. And then number four, when enticed towards sinful pleasures and responses, Remember, Jesus is returning to judge. There's a, there's a dual piece here that I wanted to emphasize. One, sometimes we're, we're, we're tempted to respond sinfully in an act of justice towards somebody, an act of vengeance towards somebody, right? And, and the encouragement here is that Jesus is coming back to do that, that, that Jesus is the best judge. He is the most just judge, and he will come to deal with every situation. So we can trust, and that's why Scripture talks so much about us not being vengeful, not trying to retaliate, because the judge is coming. But there's also this piece here that I think keeps us motivated when we're tempted to, um, to wander towards living obediently. Now, I, I don't think that, um, that we should only live obediently because we're fearful of Jesus coming back to judge. Right? Like, I hope the new life is more than that. I hope that when we see this new life described in Ephesians chapter 2, that we don't just stop living sinfully because we're fearful that Jesus is going to come back and judge us one day. That, that he's recreating our desires. He's helping us to see that his commandments are good, that his, his laws are good, that his plans are good, which with this new life, this, this Holy Spirit living inside of us, it prompts us to want to live that way, not because he's coming back to judge, but because it's the best way to live. But we're not fully sanctified yet, right? And so there are some aspects of my life 
where I choose to live obediently for him, not because my desires are necessarily there yet where it wants to do this, but because I'm mindful of the fact that Jesus is coming back and I will be held accountable to him. And so that piece is contained for us in this passage too, that Jesus is coming back to judge, that he is coming back to to judge in a way that God has given him the power and authority to do so. And so it's a good reminder to us as well this week that temptation is going to come our way. There's going to be a temptation towards sinful pleasures and a temptation to respond sinfully to situations in our life where we want to potentially bring justice. We want to potentially bring vengeance. And it's a good reminder to us as well that Jesus is coming back to judge. And so we can rest and hope in that. I wanted to close our time together today by praying through these four things for all of us. Um, that God would give us ways to, to apply what we're seeing over the past several weeks and even today moving forward, that God would give us the, the belief, the faith, the trust needed to respond appropriately to some of the situations that we're facing soon, situations that we're maybe not even planning for. Um, and so I want us to take some time and pray for this um, in closing today. And so as I pray, I want you to kind of reflect on some of these things as well. God, as we continue through this study, I want you to continue to to lead us to believe in you more. And God, for us to believe and trust in you more, it means most likely you putting us in situations where we have to do that. And so God, we're fully aware that means that circumstances that may come our way in the near future are going to be circumstances that we didn't necessarily choose or want to choose. And God, we're going to be tempted at times to doubt your goodness. We're going to be tempted to question why you are doing the things that you are doing. And God, I pray that you would, in those moments, remind us that as both Father and Son, you have demonstrated great wisdom and great purpose in the things that you've chosen to do. So God, I pray that in the midst of circumstances that are undesirable, it would not lead us into seasons of doubt. But God, those would be seasons of establishment for our faith. That we would not waste opportunities to to trust you more. That instead we would be prompted and triggered to remember what we are reading in your word to be able to apply it to a daily situation like that. God, help us to be mindful of your goodness every single day. Father, for those in our life that we have been praying and longing for their salvation for for so long, God, I pray that you would bring salvation to those situations. And as we continue to wait, God, increase our faith and trust in you that you can bring salvation to those situations. Father, we have church members sitting with us today who have aunts and uncles, even spouses and children who have rejected the gospel for years. God, help us not to grow content with that response. Help us not to accept that response as though this is just how things are going to be. God, help us to continue to trust that you can bring salvation. God, I pray for those particular that are feeling a burden, even right now, for somebody in their life. God, that you would remind them that you have the ability to give life. 
that you have the ability to cross people from death to life to escape judgment. And God, I pray they'd be able to see that. I pray that you would reward them for their faith and their trust in you to be able to see you work and move in a mighty way like that. God, for those that are continuing to deal with grief over the loss of a loved one, whether that's recent or whether that was years ago, that they have still never really fully trusted you with that. God, I pray that they would find hope and encouragement, that full healing, full resurrection is coming in the future. God, I pray particularly for, um, for my family members that are, that are grieving today. Um, I pray that you would bring hope and encouragement for them. I pray that you would bring salvation for his family members that have rejected the gospel. I pray that you would remind all of them of the the hope of the resurrection. They can trust you and your goodness in the midst of that loss. God, I pray that as we encounter temptation this week, as we are tempted to value the things of this world over eternal things, as we're tempted to doubt the goodness of your your plans and your purposes, and we're tempted to do things on our own and in ways that we would rather. God, I pray that we would we would be reminded when needed that you're coming back to judge. Even when our desires haven't been fully fixed, God, help us not to lose sight of the fact that you are our king and that you call us to obedience to you and that we have every reason to obey you. So God, I pray that we'd be faithful to respond that way this week. Continue to help us to see ways to apply what we're learning. And pray that you would increase our trust and our faith in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.